0: I want to begin uh, week two of our Leaving a Godly Legacy series on a morbid note. I promise that uh, we won't stay there uh, too long. In fact, we're going to move pretty quickly to some much, much better uh, news. Uh, But I do want to begin uh, with some funeral planning. I want us to plan our own funeral here a little bit this morning, and I know that Uh, We do a lot to try to ignore the fact that we're actually going to have a funeral. But the last I checked, uh, death has a pretty good track record. In fact, death is batting a thousand percent, which means that we're all going to have a funeral one day unless Jesus comes back first. And we would prefer that for sure. But if Jesus doesn't come back, every single one of us is going to have a funeral. So at your funeral, how do you want to be remembered? Maybe think about it this way. Uh, what do you want the person who's giving your eulogy uh, to say? Here's why this is an important exercise. Uh, unless we think about the kind of legacy we want to leave behind and actually take intentional steps to actually leave that behind, then it's highly unlikely that we're actually going to leave behind what we want to leave behind. Like I said last week, a godly legacy doesn't happen by default, it happens by design. Let me tell you what I want to be remembered uh, for. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, this week, and I've reaffirmed that I want to be remembered as someone who is steadfast and faithful. Steadfast and faithful to my wife, uh, to my children, uh, to my friends, to my church, and most of all, to my savior, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit really impressed this upon me uh, this week as I was visiting my parents. Uh, So my parents, um, in their living room, it's actually my mom, uh, but in in her living room, she has what I like to call the the wall of fame. So the wall of fame uh, has uh, the names of her children on plaques uh, with what their name means uh, and a Bible verse underneath of it. And then there's also one uh, achievement for for each child. So I have four siblings um, and there are four significant academic achievements on that wall. I do not have one of those academic achievements, so it's like valedictorians and salutatorians. So it's actually kind of the wall of shame for me, wall of fame for them, wall of shame for me. Uh, I have uh, a, an athletic achievement, uh, MVP at a basketball tournament, and that might sound all impressive, but it's really not. I had 13 people in my graduating class, so the competition <laughs> was not exactly stellar, okay? I can say something about home, playing homeschoolers here, but I won't. Um, um, so. Uh, I offend a lot of people in my audience, but anyway, um, for me, um, I saw the plaque with my name this week, and I was reminded that the name Chris means steadfast for Christ. And on that plaque, uh, there's 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, where Paul says, "Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." So as I think about my funeral, I hope that when that day comes, I will have lived up to my name. I hope that whoever is uh, doing my eulogy, whether it be one of my kids or siblings, um, maybe it will be one of you. that That person will be able to say, this was Chris Carr. He was steadfast and he was faithful because he knew that in Jesus and because of Jesus, His labor was not in vain. Now, I don't know what you want to be remembered for, but I really have to believe that you want to be remembered as someone who made an impact. You want your memory to to be one where you made a real difference, and you made a real difference for Jesus. I have to believe, I actually am confident that, that you want to leave a godly legacy And so today I want to talk to you about the kind of things that prevent us from leaving a godly legacy. See, we have adversaries. We have things that are working against us to prevent us from leaving the kind of legacy that we want to leave. And so today I want to talk to you about what those things are and how to thwart them. So last week we talked about the components of a godly legacy, what a godly legacy looks like. And this morning, we're going to consider the enemies of a godly legacy. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have very powerful enemies that wage war against us. The Bible is clear that the Christian life is war. It uses all kinds of warfare imagery to describe what it means to be a Christian. For example, in First Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus because no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since it is his aim to please the one who has enlisted him. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you were enlisted in God's army and you have been called to do battle with God's enemies, which are your enemies. Now I need to be careful here because uh, I know some of you get all jacked up about this military kind of stuff, right? This this warfare kind of stuff talk you like get really really excited about, and you're you're already thinking about those guns you're going to get out this afternoon and go to the range, and you're going to get that tan right out, and you're going to blow something up. We're not talking about that kind of warfare. Okay, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, In Second Corinthians chapter ten, Paul says that that we're we're in in a war. But the weapons that we fight with are are not weapons of the flesh, but they are rather divine weapons that have the power to destroy strongholds. We're talking about a spiritual warfare. And there are many more examples of warfare language in the New Testament, some of which we will look at as we move through this message. But for now, I just want to emphasize that we must never forget that we're living in wartime, not peacetime. That every day, whether we realize it or not, we have enemies that are waging war against us, doing everything they can to destroy our lives and to ruin our legacy. So we're going to, if we're going to leave a godly legacy, we must do as Paul tells Timothy and we have to stop living as civilians and we have to start living like soldiers. So let's now talk about how to do so. Why don't you meet me this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Today we're going to look at one of my favorite passages, and that means I'm going to have to be really careful this morning, or this message is going to be really, really long. It's kind of already trending that way uh, here at the beginning, Uh, but uh, there's so much that we could talk about here, just a stupendous passage. So I want to encourage you as, as we go through and when we're done, if you're like, well, why didn't you talk about that? Why didn't you talk about that? Why didn't you talk about that? Just remember that we're focusing on the enemies of a godly legacy. And if I talked about everything I could talk about in this passage, we would literally be here for three or four hours, okay? And I know one or two of you will come up to me afterwards and say, I would be happy to stay for three or four hours, but I know most of you wouldn't be, all right? So we're gonna focus on what Paul has to tell us here about our enemies. Pick up with me in verse 10. He writes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I wanna begin by highlighting the contrast in these verses between what we were and what we are. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse one, but now we are alive in Christ. Amen? Amen. We were walking, i.e., living in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil, verses two and three. But now we are walking in freedom as God's new creation. Amen? amen? And we were children of wrath, verse 3. But now we are saved by grace, verse 5 and 8. Amen and amen? Amen. amen. Now, I need to clarify uh, that the we here are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Specifically, again, through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to point out that this is where a godly legacy starts. It starts when we move from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from being a child of wrath to being a child of God, through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So, if you get nothing else from this series, get this. You you cannot have a godly legacy until you place your faith in Jesus Christ and are therefore made alive, become a child of God, are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies, are saved by grace, and become a new creation. God's workmanship, his His work of art, who gives themselves to God work. So, this is a good work. So, the good works, that godly legacy, they happen as a result of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So, if you've never placed your faith in, in Jesus Christ, instead of thinking about everything else we're going to talk about today, simply place your faith in him and that godly legacy will begin. Now with that said, I want to take a closer look at verses one through three as they reveal the three enemies of a godly legacy. And I want to point these out to you in the text. You may want to highlight them or underline them in your Bible. Follow along with me. Verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's enemy number one, the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, that's uh, enemy number two, the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's enemy number three, the flesh, uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there are three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And before we talk about each of these, I want to say two things. First, while as believers, we aren't enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil any longer, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that all three of them still pose serious threats to us. As as Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, they are waging war against our souls. Let me just say that again. This is God's word. Our enemies are waging war against our souls. We might think of it this way: uh, they're defeated enemies because Jesus defeated them through His uh, death and resurrection. But they're still fighting a guerrilla war against us. A war in which they're more cap- more than capable of doing great damage to our lives and to our legacy. And that means second. If we're going to leave a godly legacy, we must do battle against these enemies. We must armor up and fight them tooth and nail and to commit to doing so until we see Jesus face to face. So I want to briefly address each of these enemies. And I'm going to give you some practical advice as to how to find victory over them. And so in doing, leave a godly legacy. So we'll begin with the world. The world here in verse 2 doesn't refer to the physical earth or the people on the earth, but rather to the value system of human culture that's in opposition to God. The world consists of the things our culture treasures and prioritizes that are in conflict with and often hostile to the things that God treasures and prioritizes. In this first letter, the Apostle John helps us understand the world when he writes this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes and the pride of life. That is the world. So so what are these things? Well, we can think of the desires of the flesh as sensualism, the desires of the eyes as materialism, and the pride of life as egotism. The world is unabashedly sensual. There's no way that you can argue that this is is not the case. And the world has these kind of mottos, like like, follow your heart. Do what feels good. If, If it feels good, Do it. So unabashedly, undeniably sensual. And the world is also undeniably material. It's driven by an unceasing craving for more and more and more. And perhaps most of all, the world is driven by arrogance, pride, and boasting. It's a world in which everything is about the individual and what he or she wants, In effect, it's a world in which the individual is God. Did you realize this? That that in our world today, again, I'm not talking about the physical earth. I'm not talking about the the people per se, but the, the prevailing view is that the individual is God. We get to define reality for ourselves. Whatever I believe is true is true. We need to speak our truth. You know what that means? That means you get to decide what truth is, which means you get to decide that Everything, what everything is, you are in effect God. That is the world in which we are living in. Now, I could talk a lot more about this, uh, but the main thing that we need to get is that the world is not our friend. It's not our friend. James 4 says this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Of God, The world isn't our friend because it isn't a friend of God. In fact, quite the opposite. The world is an enemy of God, and so if it's God's enemy, it needs to be our enemy too. James says that if we're a friend of the world, we're actually being an enemy of God. The problem here, though, is that today we are very prone to be way too friendly with the world because we're constantly bombarded with the world's sensualism, materialism, and egotism, we can easily adopt these values. We can all too easily give ourselves to what feels good without considering what is actually good. We can find ourselves accumulating more and more stuff instead of prioritizing God's kingdom. And we can even start to believe that we can define our own reality That instead of the Bible being the final authority, we are the final authority. Instead of the Bible getting to decide what is right and wrong, we get to decide what is right and wrong. And listen, I'm not just talking about unbelievers, okay? We, we all live in the world. In fact, we're, not, we're supposed to live in the world, okay? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, which is really, really difficult because we live in the world and we're inundated with the world's values, with the world's message, with the world's priorities, with its philosophies, with the things that it treasures. And we're hearing this all the time. It's coming in all the time. We're just immersed in it. And the problem is, is that we can all too easily begin to think like the world, believe like the world, and act like the world. And so, and really the point here in regards to this series is that when that happens, it prevents us from leading to godly legacy. And so, how do we combat this? How do we treat the world as an enemy instead of as, as a friend? So, again, we got to think of in, in this war, warfare mentality here, all right? Uh, and we got to realize that the world is our enemy. And with your enemy, like you're doing battle with your enemy, you don't treat it friendly. Y'all you with me? You, you don't treat your enemy that you're doing battle with it, as a friend. You actually treat him as an enemy. So, the world is our enemy. How do we treat the world as our enemy? Well, here's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is attempting to form us into its mold. That's what the word conform means. So, So the world has a mold. It has something that's trying to shape us into And it's doing absolutely everything it can. Again, to get us to think like it, to act like it, to believe like it. And if we're going to combat this, instead of being conformed, we have to be transformed. And how are we transformed? We're transformed through the renewing of our minds. The world is inundating us with its values. And so we have to fight against this by giving ourselves to God's values. Can you see that there is a huge contrast between the world's values and God's values? And so what what, what we're talking about here is instead of giving ourselves to the world's values and allowing those values to become our values and to shape our lives the way, again, think, act the way that we believe, we have to give ourselves to God's values and allow God's values to shape how we act and think and believe. Let's get really practical. How do we do this? Well, the way that we do this is through spiritual practices like Bible reading, prayer, silence, and solitude. We say that again. Bible reading, prayer, silence, and solitude. And we're going to talk a lot more about these later on in this series and in a workshop we're, we're doing on Wednesday night, May the 10th. So I encourage you to, to be a part of the series and a part of that workshop. And, and so for now, I, I just want to go into great detail but I, I want to point out, if that we're going to combat the world and treat it as an enemy instead of a friend, then we have to devote time from, to actually getting away from the world, stepping away from it, so that we can spend time with the Lord in, in quietness, in, in, in solitude, in, in Bible reading and in prayer so that we, we disengage from the world and we give the Lord and his spirit the opportunity to shape our values so that they become his values. So if, we, if we're spending a whole lot of time, okay, listening to what the world has to say and we're not spending time listening to what the Lord has to say, we're going to be conformed to the world instead of being transformed by the renewal of his mind. If you want to leave a godly legacy, I know this is tough today, but really what we're talking about here is talking about cutting through the noise. Have you noticed how there's a lot of noise today? A ton of noise. And it takes some discipline to do this, but we have to discipline ourselves and say, hey, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to cut the TV off. I'm going to cut the phone off. All right, I'm going to cut the computer off. And I'm simply going to spend time with the Lord and allow Him to transform my mind so that I become like Him instead of like the world. That's the world. Let's talk about the flesh, the second enemy. Verse 2, Paul says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The passion of our flesh are desires. The desires that our fallen, self-centered nature has corrupted. The word passions refers to strong desires. And I want to point out here that the problem actually isn't the strong desires. God created us with strong desires. But what's happened is our fallen sinful nature has twisted those desires so that we pursue them in an ungodly way. Let me give some examples here. Our desire for sex is God-given. But our flesh can turn that desire into lust. When it comes to sex, our flesh directs our desires toward immorality instead of toward purity. Our desire for food and drink is good. God gave us taste buds after all. You're thankful for taste buds, right? We're thankful for food and drink. It's good, that desire is good. You need that desire because you need food and drink to live. But God is so gracious that He gave us for our sustenance, He gave it for our enjoyment. But the problem is, is that our sinful nature uh, can turn that desire into gluttony and drunkenness. When it comes to food and drink, our flesh directs our desires toward dissipation instead of toward self-control. And our desire for uh, rest is God-given. In fact, God himself rests. So so, so taking a nap, great, wonderful. Getting a lot of sleep, great, wonderful. But our flesh can all too easily turn that desire into laziness. When it comes to rest, our flesh directs us to indolence instead of towards diligence. Again, we could talk about this one a lot more. But what I mostly want to impress upon you here is that when it comes to combating the flesh, the Bible uses very strong, very intense language. For example, in Romans chapter eight, Paul writes this. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The deeds of the body are the same thing as the passions of the flesh. And that means Paul is saying that we have to be killing the flesh or it will be killing us. Let me say this to you. You have two natures living within you. You have a, a new nature. It's created after Christ Jesus. It's your a workmanship, now created for, for good works. But you also have your old nature in you. And that old nature, that flesh, okay, it is trying to kill you. Each and every day, it is trying to kill you. And what Paul tells us repeatedly throughout the New Testament is that we have to put that old nature, that flesh to death. He, he literally says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 that we have to crucify it. And you know what I find? I have to crucify it like every day or I should crucify it every day because I'll kill it one day and it comes back to life the next day. It's like back to life every morning when I wake up. And so we've got to, I mean, like this is serious, serious, intense language. We're not talking about being friend or like it's not a big deal or just kind of, okay, I can deal with it. No, we got to put it to death. We got to put it to death. You see, friends, your flesh, just like the world, it's not your friend. It's your enemy and it's trying to kill you. So how do we actually put our flesh uh, to death? And again, we could talk a lot about this. I'm going to give you two ways to kill your flesh, all right? The first way is by exposing it. You kill your flesh by confessing your struggle with it. Confessing your struggle with it, James chapter four. James tells us, actually James chapter five, he tells us that we are to confess our sins one to another so that we may be healed. Just like mold thrives in the dark but dies when it's exposed to sunlight, so too does our flesh thrive in the dark but dies when it's exposed to the light. Now, I know that this can be really hard, and I know that our flesh lies to us and tells us it isn't necessary, but I really hope that you will believe me today when I tell you that simply confessing your struggle will help you to find victory. You see, when we confess, our flesh starts to lose its power. Now, I just experienced this this very week. So I have a couple of men um, in our church that I've met with uh, for a couple times a month for a better part of a decade. And as I was going to meet with them early this Thursday morning, um, the Spirit was speaking to me about something that I was just kind of wrestling with. And the Spirit is saying, hey, you need to bring that, that struggle to light. You just need to tell them about it so they, they can. You, you're, you're speaking it, you're getting out, you're not trying to handle this on your own, um, and they can be praying for you. That's what the Spirit is saying. And my flesh, on the other hand, you know what my flesh is saying? Flesh is saying, oh, you don't really need to, to bring that out. God knows about it. You've talked to Him about it. You've got it to, together, all right? No problem. Nobody needs to know about that. And so I've got this wrestling, new nature, old nature going on. And Spirit just like, you don't got it, okay? You need to bring it out. And if you do, that's the way to freedom. And I did, and I've already experienced freedom and the blessing of the Lord in doing that. So I just want to encourage you, uh, if you allow your sin and your struggle to sit in the dark and you try to handle it on your own, it will eat you alive. It will eat you alive. But if you will simply bring it to the light and confess, certainly to the Lord, absolutely, and then to other brothers and sisters, that sin and that struggle, that part of your flesh will begin to lose its power on you. And so we expose it, but then, second, we starve it. Now, there's a number of things that I'm sharing today that uh, you might think are crazy. In fact, some of you today, some of these things that I'm gonna share today, you're like, that's absolutely crazy. That's that's radical. We don't need to go there. And yet it's all very biblical. So when I'm talking about starving it, I'm talking about fasting. I'm talking about intentionally and with wisdom and temporarily depriving ourselves so that our flesh loses its grip on us. Now in the Bible, fasting is primarily uh, about food, but it's also applicable to things like entertainment, technology, and purchasing. So here's the conclusion that I've come to in my life why I need more fasting in my life. I've noticed in recent days that there are some things I give way too much time to. Now, these things aren't uh, bad things, um, they're, they're not wrong things, but they're things that hold little eternal value and that therefore detract me rather than contributing to me leaving a godly legacy. Uh, One of these things, um, honestly, is watching sports. Now, by the way, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that watching sports is wrong. It's not wrong. But what I found is like, I just spend way too much time on it. And while I think that I can just like, I'm not gonna spend that time, I'm not gonna spend the time, I just do, I just get sucked in. Like, I can get sucked in like a cornhole on ESPN two. okay? And, And so... Um, yeah, it's an issue, real problem here, okay? But, but it's not that watching it is wrong. The, the problem is, is that it can exert way too much control on me. And when I'm giving myself to something, uh, to such a degree, I'm really detracting, taking away from the ability to leave a godly legacy. I'm giving room. I'm giving my flesh quarter. And so, I'm recognizing that I need to, to periodically fast from watching sports. Now, I don't know if that's true for you, but I would guess that there are some things in your life that you need to periodically deprive yourselves of so that you can have more time to spend with the Lord and focusing on the kind of things that are gonna leave a godly legacy, and you can also help to loosen the grip that your flesh has on you. Let's now move on and talk about our greatest enemy of all, the devil. So we've hit the world, the flesh, Let's talk about the devil, and there are three things I want to point out to you about the devil. Three things you need to know. Number one, the devil is real. The devil is real. He's a real personality. He's a real person, in effect. While many churches and Christians are fuzzy about this today, the Bible is not fuzzy about it at all. In fact, ever get this. Every book in the New Testament talks about the devil, and together these books make it clear that he's far from the caricature of a harmless guy in red tights with a horns and a pitchfork, right? By the way, do you know who's behind that caricature? The devil's behind that caricature. He's the one that, that comes up with that idea. He's the one that spreads that idea. And so, the devil wants us to laugh about the idea of him. Brothers and sisters, I can promise you that when the devil showed up in the Garden of Eden, it was no laughing matter. Because when he was done with Adam and Eve, they were not laughing at all. And it's no laughing matter when we run into him today. And that's because number two, the devil is powerful. Verse two tells us that he is the prince of the power of the air. And in other New Testament passages, we're told he's the ruler of the world, the God of this world, and the one, get this, who has the whole world under his control. The devil is in control of what's going on in this world. The devil is so powerful, the New Testament tells us that he can hinder God's work in the world, that he can uh, give the ability to false prophets to perform signs and wonders, that he can cause illness and disability, that he can persecute believers even to the point of having them martyred, and above all, that he has the power to deceive and lead people astray. And that leads to number three, the devil is deceitful. The primary way that the devil attacks us is through lies. It's the main way that he does his work in the world. So I want you to hear this, okay? The main way that the devil does his work in in the world and and the way that he attacks us is not through things like demon oppression or demon uh, oppression or possession or by um, causing illness or by even causing persecution, The primary way that the devil attacks us is through lies. Where did I take this from? John chapter eight. Jesus says this, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil's first attack on humanity was through telling a lie to Eve, a lie that has led to the death of billions That's why Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. And what we need to realize is that, while the devil doesn't come today and and lie normally, he doesn't come and lie to us directly like he he lied to eat, he's not omnipresent, okay? So he's not everywhere all the time like whispering into all of our ears. Instead, the way that the, the devil lies is by working in concert with the world and our sinful flesh to deceive us and to destroy our efforts to leave a godly legacy. So here's something every believer needs to understand. The devil um, controls the messaging of the world. So so all of these values and priorities and philosophies and treasures that are hostile towards God and the way that the world thinks and acts and believes all of that neared, all of that messaging is controlled by the devil. All comes from him. And he takes that messaging and he uses it to speak directly to our sinful flesh, to our fallen sinful nature in a way that we are tempted to believe his lies and instead of pursuing the things of God, we will pursue the things of, of him. That's how he works. So this messaging, these these things that you hear in the world, is coming straight from the devil. And he targets those things to your own individual specific struggle in order to tempt you, to deceive you into believing that his way is the right way instead of God's way being the right way. So here's what we need to know. The primary way that the devil attacks us is through lies. What is the primary way that we are called to combat him? If he's telling the lies, we've got to combat him with the truth. We've got to combat him with the truth. Of course, our example here is Jesus. When Jesus was attacked by the devil in the wilderness, how did Jesus respond to the devil? The devil tells Jesus three lies, and each time Jesus responds with God's word, he responds with the truth. He combats the devil's lives with the truth of God's word. And brothers and sisters, we must learn to do the same. In that famous passage about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers of darkness and heavenly places, against the devil and his demons. That's who we're doing battle with. And how has God equipped us to do battle? he's equipped us in two ways. First, defensively, he's given us the armor of God. We've got to put on the armor of God. And then offensively, we've got to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If we're going to combat the devil, we have to know the word of God and we have to begin to use it to ward off the attacks of the devil. So that when he tells lies, and again, he's telling lies through, through the world. Okay? And he's telling lies to try to control our sinful nature. And as those lies are coming in, we've got to combat those lies with the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word. So, let me finish today by emphasizing two things. One, I, I know uh, there's been a lot. There's been a lot. So, since this is the case, I hope you're going to spend some time this week reviewing and processing what we've talked about. Friends, the stakes are really, really high here. Your legacy is hanging in the balance, which means your children, grandchildren, and friends are hanging in the balance. There's just too much at stake for you not to take this seriously. And listen, don't think I'm being alarmist here. I'm not being alarmist. I've, I've really just taught you straight from, from God. I've not made any of this. This isn't it coming from me. It's coming straight from the word of God. And, and, and one of the, 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 the biggest um, lies that the devil is just giving us today is this idea. It's not that big a deal. Like we're, we're okay. Like we're, this complacency. Like we, we don't need to go to war. We do need to go to war because we are in a war. Whether you're in it or not, the devil's in it. The flesh is in it. The world is in it. And your legacy is hanging in the balance. So you got to go to battle. With that being said, I want you to hear this as we close. You can win. Do you believe that? You can win. Here's how you can win. You can win because Jesus says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, on the cross, Jesus defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil. The war's been won. The war's been won. And it's been said many, many times, but I've read the back of the book and we win. We win. And because that is the case, we can win in the battles that we face until Jesus comes to put the world, the flesh, and the devil in the grave once and for all. So, so he's going to do that. And because he's going to do that, and because he's given us the word of God, and because he's given us a spirit, we can engage with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we can win. If we will lean in to his power. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of God living in you. He's in you. Which means you have what is in you, what is greater than what is in the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you will wake up, if you will suit up, armor up, stop acting like a civilian and start acting like a soldier, you will find victory. And in so doing, leave a godly legacy so that when that funeral day comes, whoever's giving you a will you say, this person fought. They didn't win all the time. They had some losses along the way but they fought, they were faithful, they were steadfast, and because that is the case, they're gonna have an impact that lasts long after they are gone. That can be true for you. That can be true for you, and so take what we talked about today, begin to implement it, and watch how you begin to leave a godly legacy.